If you snuck in after the welcome, I want to introduce myself again. I'm Shane Hatfield, the RUF campus minister at Oklahoma State University, and I'm so honored and privileged to bring God's word to you all this morning in Owasso, Oklahoma. Just to give you a little update about the work at Oklahoma State, I took over this year from the former campus minister, Daniel Killian. Uh, We moved there in June and got moved in and took over the ministry. And over the course of this year, there have been many challenges in our ministry, but there's also been a lot of fruit as well. And often when I think about our ministry over the last year, I think about uh, the Apostle Paul when he writes in Romans chapter 5. He talks about how uh, our suffering produces character and character produces endurance and endurance produces hope. And that hope doesn't put us to shame. And we haven't been put to shame this year at Oklahoma State. There have been many students who have trusted in Christ, who have grown in Christ, and who have grown in grace. And our ministry has been very fruitful there. And so we're, we're so thankful for the hope that we have in Christ and what God has done uh, there. And we're thankful for you all because the support of Trinity Owasso makes our work possible. Uh, When you give to Trinity, you are also giving to RUF at Oklahoma State University. In a lot of ways, we are your missionaries on the campus at Oklahoma State. So please pray for us. Please, uh, if you're interested in getting our newsletters and finding out what's going on, find me after the worship service and I'll get your email or your address and we can make sure that you get that information. Uh, This morning, we're going to give you a little taste of what we went through this spring in the book of James. In the fall, we went through the book of Luke, and we looked at rescue stories in Luke. And we learned that faith is the means by which we cling to Christ, and he rescues us. That Jesus seeks the the lost, he seeks to save them, them, and we cling to him in faith. Then, in the spring, we went to the book of James, and we said, okay, how do we put that faith into action? So this sermon this morning is from James chapter 1, but it's kind of an introduction to the overall book of James. And we're going to look at how we put our faith in action on a daily basis. Please pray with me, and then we will get into God's Word. Gracious Father in heaven, we do come to you as people that you have sought and saved. We come to you as people who uh, are trying to cling to you in faith. Uh, Some days that faith is weak. And some days that faith is strong. We're so thankful that we're not saved by the amount of our faith, but by the object of our faith. And that is your son Christ. As we come to the book of James now and we look at his life and his teachings, we pray that you would show us how to put our faith into action. We pray that you would show us how our faith in you and your son changes us. And then we in turn change the world around us through you. Pray that you would give us attention and focus right now. We pray your Holy Spirit would open our, our, our hearts, our minds, and our ears. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite characters from uh, Christian history, not characters, people from Christian history, is a man named William Wilberforce. Uh, William Wilberforce was a politician in Great Britain in the 18th and 19th century. You may be familiar uh, with him from the book Amazing Grace and the movie Amazing Grace. He's most known for being instrumental in the abolishing of the slave trade in Great Britain. What, people, what most people don't know, unless you read the book or you watched the movie, is that his entire life was a journey of faith. And that, that that accomplishment of helping abolish the slave trade was really a culmination of his faith that took place over a long period of time. He was... Uh, when he was a young boy, he was given over to his aunt and his uncle, who were Methodists, 
And what it meant to be a Methodist back then was that you were very, very zealous for Christ and you were pursuing Jesus through prayer and through the scriptures. Well, when his parents found out about this, they took him away from his aunt and his uncle. Well, then he grew up uh, as an adolescent and as a young adult, and he uh, didn't pursue the faith. He lived a life of immorality. He tried to climb up the social and political ladder, and he did. He was very, very good at politics, and he was very, very good at partying. And so that made him a very popular person. At one point, uh, some scholars think that he probably would have been the prime minister of Britain had it not been for a fateful carriage ride through Europe. He and his mother and his sister decided to ride in a carriage around Europe and kind of see, see all the sights. He decided to take a friend with him. That friend was Isaac Milner. What he didn't know about Isaac was that Isaac was a Methodist. And so when they got in the carriage and they started riding around Europe, they did what you did in carriages before you had smartphones and the internet and all those things. They read and they talked. They talked about politics. They talked about religion. They talked about life. Uh, they read the Bible. They began to talk about the person and work of Jesus. And as Isaac began to talk with William about the person and work of Jesus, something happened in Wilber William Wilberforce. He began to change. He began to pray. He began to read the scriptures. He began to wrestle with the truth claims of Christianity. And after that carriage ride, many believed that he was converted. He believed in the gospel of grace. He believed that he was a sinner, and his only hope for salvation was Jesus. Well, after that, he, he kind of like threw him into this identity crisis. He withdrew from politics. He withdrew from his social life. And he had to figure out, okay, how am I going to put this new faith into action? So he sought the counsel of a man named John Newton. John Newton was a former slave trader who was a famous pastor in Great Britain at that time in the Anglican Church. And Newton convinced him that the best way for him to put his faith in action was to remain in Parliament and to use his stature to abolish the slave trade. And that's what he did. Through his life and work, many people were set free. Now, I tell you that story because I think his life illustrates what the Bible teaches and what James teaches about the life of faith. And that is this, that faith compels us to act. That faith drives us into action. That faith is not something that just merely leaves us unchanged. That faith in Jesus Christ really has power, and it really changes us, and it really drives us to go out of the world and change the things that we encounter. Faith produces action. Now, after my first year on campus, after talking to a lot of students, one of the things that I realized was is that a lot of Christians don't know how their faith in Jesus changes them. They don't know how to live out the life of faith. They know that Jesus died for their sins. They believe in him. They know they're going to heaven, but they don't understand how Jesus actually changes them on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. They struggle to put their faith into action. Do you struggle with that? I know I do. I know there are days when I wake up and I'm clinging to Jesus, but I have no clue what that looks like. If that's you, then James is a great book for you to look at. It's a great book for you to read. It's a great book for you to study because James is intensely practical. He wants to show us how to put our faith into action. There's only 
108 verses in the book of James, and there are 59 commands in the book of James. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I think that's something about like once every two verses or so, right? There's a command. There's something James tells us to do to put our faith into action. And so what we're going to do this morning is do a little survey of James, and we're going to see three things that James shows us to help us put our faith in action. James is going to show us that faith changes you, that faith changes your title, and that faith changes your purpose. Faith changes you, faith changes your title, and faith changes your purpose. So the first thing we see is that faith changes you. Now, where do we see that? We see that simply in the life of the author of the book of James. James was written by the half-brother of Jesus. Yeah, you, probably didn't, you may not know that he had a half-brother. Talk about getting overshadowed. Okay, he was a younger brother. He got overshadowed. If Jesus was your older brother, you would have gotten overshadowed too. But he was the half-brother of Jesus. He became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. He presided over the Jerusalem council, and he was eventually martyred for his faith. But he wasn't always like that. As we read from John chapter 7, James didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't believe in Jesus. He thought Jesus was crazy. We see that in uh, Mark chapter 3. His family, Jesus' family, actually interrupted him while he was teaching. We see that in Matthew 12. And then at the end of Jesus' life, we see that Mary was the only one that stayed with Jesus at the cross. At least she was the only one who was recorded as staying with him. And so James didn't believe in Jesus initially. So what happened? What changed James? Well, as we read, as Lance read for us so eloquently from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that the resurrected Jesus met James. That after Jesus rose from the grave, he personally went and visited James. He saw him. James saw the resurrected Jesus. Now, we don't know the details of all that happened in that encounter, but you can only imagine, right? Could you imagine this kind of like the light bulb going off for James? Like, oh, that's why, that's why Jesus never disobeyed mom and dad. That's why Jesus was always loving and kind and serving. That's why Jesus was doing all these crazy teachings all the time. That's why Jesus was healing people. He's the Messiah, he really did live this perfect life. He really did die a sacrificial death. He's really alive. He rose from the grave. The resurrection of Jesus Christ radically changed James. How did it change him? He describes it for us in James chapter 1, verse 18. I forgot to tell you to open your Bible, but if you have a Bible, you could open it. We're going to look at a few different verses in James that aren't up here on the screen. Uh, James 1, verse 18 says this. Of his, that's God's, own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creations. So what does James mean? The term brought forth is sometimes translated as birthed. Maddie Pinner gave birth she brought forth a new child last night. Well, what brought James forth? It was the word of truth. That word of truth is the gospel. 
So what James is saying is the thing that changed him and the thing that changed us is believing in the gospel. And when we believe in the gospel, that rebirths us. That radically changes us. As Christians, we are not the same people that we were before Christ. You're something new. You might be familiar with the way Paul says it. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. He also says, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So if you're in Christ, you've been changed. You've been rebirthed. You're a radically different person than you were before. And that's what happened to Wilberforce when he got out of that carriage and he believed in the gospel. He realized he was somebody radically different and he had to rethink the way he related with God and with other people and with his work. He knew that faith changed him. I talked to, okay, so what does that mean for us? Um, If this is true, right, if what James says is true and believe in the gospel rebirths us and changes us, then why don't we know how to live out the Christian life? Or why don't we live out the Christian life? I think the problem is that sometimes we confuse being around Jesus with actually being near Jesus. I think we confuse being around Jesus, being in the proximity of Jesus, with actually drawing near to Jesus by faith in the gospel. And think about James. Like, think about his life. He was around Jesus all the time, right? But he didn't believe in Jesus. When I talked to students at Oklahoma State this year, I realized that a lot of them were around Jesus, but they didn't believe in Jesus. I'll never forget one student. I sat down, I started talking to him, and I said, you know, are you a Christian? And he said, yeah. I said, what makes you a Christian? And he said, well, my mom read the Bible and prayed all the time. And we, <laughs> that kind of struck me. It's like, okay, that's your mom. That's not you. And so we began to talk, and he'd never went to church, and he had never professed faith in Christ. But he was around his mother, who was around Jesus, and he thought that made him a Christian. But as we see from the life of James, being around Jesus doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is believing the gospel and drawing near to Jesus. So I think for some of us, we have to ask ourselves, have I simply been content to be around Jesus? Have I grown up in the church? Have I grown up in the Bible belt? Have I said Christian things, but not actually believe the gospel for myself? I think another reason why we uh, struggle to put our faith in action is we don't really understand what faith is. I think a lot of us think faith is just some vague, wishful hope. Oh, I pray to God. I hope that God hears me. I hope that he likes me. And that's not what faith is. What is true saving faith? What does it look like to believe the gospel? It's receiving Jesus and resting in him. It's a lot like riding a ski lift. Uh, I talked to Wyatt earlier. Wyatt, were you on the ski trip? You were on the ski trip. Were you in my snowboarding group? No, you weren't. You were in my snowboarding group. Okay, so you're going to know what I'm talking about. So RUF went on this winter conference ski trip over Christmas break, and I made the horrible decision of being a 33-year-old man that's moderately athletic trying to learn how to snowboard, okay, for the first time ever. Yeah, you can laugh. It was dumb. He saw it. You can ask him about it later. 
But when I teach you how to, to snowboard, they take you to this bunny slope, and you start at the top of the bunny slope, and they teach you a trick, and then you're supposed to practice this trick all the way down the bunny slope, and then you get to the bottom with all the 10-year-olds and 12-year-olds, and you ride the bunny slope back up, and they teach you another trick, and you practice the trick down, and then you ride it back, and you just kind of do this all day. It's this endless cycle, right? Well, I was horrible. And so I would get to the top, and they would teach me this trick, and literally I would kind of like float like a leaf down, and it would fall, and I would tumble, and I would hit my shoulder, and I would hit my neck, and I would just beat myself up all the way down the bunny slope, and I would get to the bottom just bruised and battered and beaten. And I would get to the lift, and there's like a little line there, and I remember walking up to the line, waiting for the ski lift to come down, and just kind of going, and the ski lift would pick me up and it would take me back to the top and I would tumble down again and I would get to the ski lift. <sighs> I would rest. And I thought to myself later, that's a lot of what it looks like to receive Jesus and rest in him. We are bruised and battered and beaten by our own sin and by the sins of this world. And we come to Jesus and we do this. we rest in him. We sit in that ski lift, and we let that ski lift take us up. Have you done that? Have you actually came to Jesus and said, I'm tired. My sin has wore me out. The sins of my parents, the sin of my boss, the sin of the government, these things have all exhausted me, Jesus, and I'm left with coming to you and doing this. That's what it means to believe the gospel. That's what changes you. That's what rebirths you. It's not just being near Jesus. It's not having some vague wish about God changing you. It's actually coming to Jesus and receiving him and resting in him. Jesus, I am resting, resting. I love that we sang that. That changes you. And that's the first step into actually putting the gospel to work in your life on a daily basis. It's what changes you. So the first thing we see is that faith changes us. The second thing we see is that faith changes your title. We see this in verse 1. Uh, James 1.1, 1, 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? This uh, is a title. James is saying, I'm James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we use titles all the time, right? Mr. Mrs., father, son, mother, daughter, reverend, doctor, whatever. And all those titles tell you something about that person. Well, this title tells us something about James. What does it tell us? Uh, the Greek word for servant here is a word doulos, which actually means slave or bondservant. And some translations will actually translate it slave or bondservant. So what James is literally saying is that James, he is a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or he's a bondservant. Now that's not, we can't confuse that with sort of our modern day idea of slavery, which was cruel and oppressive and wrong and unbiblical. Right? Slaves during the New Testament time, were supposed to be taken care of by their master. It was a form of indentured servitude. 
A slave would come to a master and say, I'm in debt. I can't pay this debt. I need to work for you. I need, to care. I need you to care for me in my family right now. And so they would work. And after a period of time, they would pay off their debt and they could either be free if they wanted to be or they could say, I want to remain with this master. I want to stay with you and I want to work for you. And the Bible even gives us very clear directions about how masters and slaves are to relate to each other. So when James says he's a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's actually a good thing. He's telling us something about what it means to be a Christian. And most commentators say James isn't just using this as a title for him and his position, but this is a general title that all Christians receive when they become Christians. So for us, to believe in Christ, to believe in the gospel, to be rebirthed means that we are servants or slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ and of God. That means that when we live out the Christian life on a day-to-day basis, that there is an entirely new authority structure for our lives. That the chain of command in our lives has changed. That we are no longer the people who sit on the throne of our lives, but God is, and Jesus Christ is. And coming to Christ is not uh, checking the box. It's not making a decision. It is bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus and to giving him your hands and saying, I'm your servant, do with me what you please. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. He's a good God. He's a good master. He loves us, and he's gracious to us. And this is something that we struggle with. And I was reminded of how much we struggle with this uh, this semester. Uh, We at Oklahoma State, we want to tell people about RUF. So what we'll do is we'll set up a table on a sidewalk where students will walk by a lot, and we'll hand them flyers. We'll have a little sign up that says, hey, you know, we're a Bible study. We meet Wednesday nights at 9 o'clock. We'll hand out flyers. Well, we always stand in the same spot at basically the same time, and so we generally see the same people over and over again. And this semester, there was this one particular student who would walk by, and as he would walk by, he would say, God doesn't exist. Be your own God. And he'd kind of walk off. And so you're kind of standing there like, hi, hi, you know, passing out your flyers, and then you got this guy walking by, basically saying, shut up, you know what you're talking about. Like, God doesn't exist, right? And so he did this kind of like repeatedly, and, it, you know, I kind of thought, okay, well, I should respond. Like, I should say something, right? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe actually living like Jesus would be saying nothing. But so he walks by one day, he says this, and I was really snarking, I shouldn't have said this, but I yelled back at him, let me know how that works out for you, buddy. And he, like, he was so shocked that I said something to him. He just skirted off real quick. He didn't say a word. He was like, he probably thought I was going to like chase him down and hit him with a Bible or something. But I really did want him to think about that. Like, if God doesn't exist and you're your own God, how does that actually work out? Is that actually a good thing? Are you actually a good master? In my experience, I'm not. I don't think it's just unbelievers that struggle with this. I think it's believers too. That the default mode of the human heart is to be a self-master, is to be a self-king. And that's something we struggle with as Christians on a daily basis. I certainly struggle with it a lot. I especially struggle with it on my day off. Because on my day off, I wake up in the morning and I have this little like perfect utopian vision of what this day off is going to look like, right? And so she knows about this, by the way, my wife. So she's not, a, you know, don't, you don't have to look at her and be like, oh, I'm so sorry, Sherry. She's like, hey, I know. This is not news to her. But so I wake up in the morning, I have this little like this utopian vision of what 
the day is going to look like. And what it really looks like is me doing exactly what I want to do all the time. Work in the yard, read my books, watch a little football, eat a good meal, put my feet up, watch some more football. Like That's kind of it. It's just kind of me revolving around myself. And so as that day off kind of progresses, of course you have friends and family and wife and kids who are constantly wanting you to be with them and to love them and to do stuff with them. And so I start out really happy, and then by the end of the day, me and my sin trying to pull all these things together makes me angry, and it makes me frustrated. And by the end of the day, I end up having to ask for forgiveness because I've sinned against my kids and my wife. That's how it works out for me whenever I try to become my own king. How does it work out for you? When you try to order the things in your life around yourself, when you become your own master, how does that work for you? In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul says that that is sin and that sin brings death. And if we continue in that kind of behavior as Christians, that we're going to bring death into our lives. Death in our relationship with our spouse, with our kids, with our friends, with our work. That brings death. But he says that when we are slaves to righteousness in Jesus Christ, that that brings life and that brings sanctification. James says that that brings freedom. He calls the law of God freedom. As we submit to the law of God, as we submit to him and his kingship, that brings freedom, that brings joy, that brings life. See, submitting to God, James tells us, means being a hearer and a doer of the word. This is James 1.22. And that as we hear the word and as we do it, that's what brings us freedom. That's what brings us joy and life. Serving God, being his slave, being his subject. And that leads us into serving others. And James spends uh, a lot of his epistle fleshing that out. When we look to the Word of God and we try to apply it to our lives, that gives us an entirely new purpose. So James says that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he elaborates that in his book, and he talks about this Word that we're supposed to study and we're supposed to apply. And when we look at that Word, that Word gives us a new purpose. And that new purpose is to serve other people. It's service. Uh, James 1.9 says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So living in submission to God, living in submission to his word, leads us to love and serve the people around us. We're not just a servant of God, we're a servant of God, but that leads us to love and serve others. And then James elaborates that throughout his entire book. Uh, and I'm just going to give you sort of an overview of all the different topics that he addresses. I would encourage you, if you're looking for some summer reading, if you're looking for a book to meditate on throughout the summer, James is a great book to do that in. If you're sitting there going, how do I live out the Christian life? Pick up the book of James and start reading. He addresses a lot of different topics. He says that a life of service leads us to serve orphans and widows. It leads us to treat others equally. It leads us to love our neighbors and show them mercy. It leads us to meet the physical needs of our neighbors. It leads us to bless others with our tongue. 
It leads us to abstain from jealousy and fighting. It leads us to abstain from judgment, to share our goods with the poor, to pray for others, and to restore others when they sin. The, the Christian life is lived out day by day, moment by moment, year by year, loving and serving the Lord our God and his people. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does it look like to serve the people around us? What does it look like to serve my spouse? Is it taking out the trash? Is it uh, watching the kids and giving the spouse a night off? They can go rest, get away, read their books, whatever they like to do. Does it mean actually sitting down with your spouse and talking to them and engaging in heartfelt, meaningful conversation, not just about the duties of the day, but about like, what's actually going on in their heart and what Jesus is teaching them? What does it look like to love your kids? Your kids? I like to play with my kids in ways that I like to play. <laughs> and so oftentimes for me, it looks like loving my kids and actually doing things that they like to do rather than things that I like to do. Sometimes it looks like me sitting down and teaching my kids. Sometimes it looks like just playing with them. We have to ask ourselves, what does it look like to serve our kids? Kids, six-year-olds and up that are in here, to be a Christian, to love Jesus, means you have to look at your mommy and daddy and go, how can I serve them? What does it look like for me to serve them, to love them? Maybe I should pick up my room without being asked. Maybe I should, you know, write mom a happy Mother's Day card. Those sorts of things. It begins as, we have to begin to change how we look at our lives. Uh, we have to ask how can we serve our coworkers. Instead of seeing the people around us just as guys that we work with or just as people to evangelize, we have to ask ourselves, like, what does it actually look like to love my coworkers and serve them? Um, we have to ask this about our church. What does it look like to love the church and to serve it? What does it look like to love the city of Owasso? Does it mean that we volunteer in the schools? That we invite our neighbors over for a barbecue? That we host a VBS even though they're a lot of work and they're really hard? That's what it means to live out the Christian life. That Jesus changes us. That he forms us into something new by his grace. And he sends us out to love and serve the community. But it's not something that we force. It's something that grows out of the Holy Spirit and who we are. It grows like a soybean grows on a soybean plant. I grew up on a farm in Quito, Oklahoma, and we raised soybeans. And I was not a good farmer. That's why I'm not a farmer anymore. I'm a pastor. God did not call me to be a farmer. That was very clear from a young age. But I learned a few things on the farm about growing soybeans. I learned that you have to work the ground. Then you have to plant the seed. Then you sit around for months and you pray for rain. And the sunlight comes. And through the rain and the sunlight and the oxygen and this thing called photosynthesis, this soybean plant comes up. And if there's the right rain and right sun and right oxygen, photosynthesis occurs, then soybeans grow. We never took soybeans and like tried to attach them to soybean plants. Soybeans grew because that's what they do from the soybean plant. As a Christian, you grow in service because that's what Christians do. As you interact with the Word, as you interact with the Holy Spirit, as God works in your heart, you grow. You grow in service, and you produce service. 
Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're feeling this tension already. You're feeling the weight of James, the weight of all these imperatives, the weight of serving. And uh, I love how one commentator said this about the book of James. He said, generations of readers have found James' directives more difficult to perform rather than understand. That's so true. The directions in James are more difficult to perform rather to, to understand. And there's this tension, this gospel tension in James, where James is calling us to do these things, but he realizes that we can't. And so all through the book of James, there are these little pointers to grace. James kind of gets a bad rap because it doesn't use our normal terms for justification and sanctification and all those things. It doesn't even really talk about Jesus that much. But there are all these little pointers to grace, all these little signs of grace throughout it. It talks about God's mercy. He talks about God's compassion. And then one commentator says the climax of the book of James is James 4, where he says, But God gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And uh, Dr. Doriani, uh, one of my seminary professors and, and one of the guys I read, said, True believers order their lives around the word of God and seek to carry it out. And when they fail, they plead for grace. So the entire Christian life is lived out by centering our lives on the word of God, by realizing that we've failed, and by pleading for grace. And so in some ways, we become a Christian, and we live as Christians the same way on the ski lift. You're going to go out there, you're going to try to love and serve your church and your spouse and your kids, and you're going to fail. And then you come to Jesus, and what do you do? You rest, and you receive him. And then you go out again, and you're going to love and serve Jesus and try to, try to serve God and serve your spouse, and then you're going to fail. You're going to get angry. You're going to get mad. And you're going to come to Jesus, and you're going to go, I need grace. And he's going to give it to you. And you're going to come back and go, and the entire Christian life is lived that way. That's how we live, moment by moment, day by day, year by year. That's how you put your faith into action. We center our lives around the Word of God, and then when we fail, we plead for grace, and we receive Jesus, and we rest in Him. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and uh, we confess that we have not been what we ought to be, that we see your teaching in the book of James. We see how James shows us to put our faith in action, and we must admit that we have failed. But you also say that you give more grace. You say that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And so we come to you as your humble servants right now, pleading for grace. Grace that can only be found in the personal work of Jesus. We pray that we draw near to you through the gospel. We pray that you would change us through the gospel. We pray that you would send us out as your servants into our families, into our world. We pray that we really love you and serve you and draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.